Section 25 of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. East Coast Notes, Chapter 2, Some Fish Notes, Part 1. The Three-Spined Stickleback The Three-Spined Stickleback, Gasterosteus aculeatus, is a sprightly, pugnacious and sturdy little fellow, game every inch of him, more especially in the early summer months, when he is dressed in his nuptial attire of blue, yellow and red, and when those amiable and intense feelings, as Couch aptly terms them, are stirred into exercise, and the cares of a family devolve upon him. What fun then it is, as one lies sprawled on the grassy margin of a ditch, watching him darting hither and thither in the neighbourhood of his precious nest, now driving from its vicinity with spines erect and rigid and glaring eyes, those whom he deems intruders on his domains, and now returning hurriedly to inspect his premises, in order to satisfy himself that nothing has happened while his back was turned. And yet it is just at this period that the human urchin, elate with spring's invigorating impulses, most mercilessly pursues and persecutes him, dragging broken baskets, hung on many knotted pieces of twine, right through his domains, like so many devastating trawl nets, and bringing him kicking and protesting to the bank, with the tangled and bedraggled debris of his hopes and ambitions heaped around him. Your urchin scarcely gives it a thought that Master Redbreast's existence was designed otherwise than to be subservient to his whims and fancies. And with what eagerness does he, after the wild drag and upheaval of the weed-clogged trawl, pounce on the silvery little kicker and drop him, not perhaps without a pricked finger, into the big-mouthed pickle-bottle that was clandestinely lifted from the cupboard shelf at home? The stickleback does not tamely submit to close imprisonment with a host of fellow unfortunates without protest, for he makes his nose sore by many a dash at his prison walls, and he has many a desperate fight with his companions before, smarting and exhausted, he sulkily submits to the situation and resolves to make the best of circumstances. It is not long ere most of the little victims perish miserably of sour breadcrumbs and asphyxiation, the survivors dropping out one by one, until the sturdiest and most vicious of them all is left in solitary state. His prison life is never of long duration, and the boy comes down some morning to see his pet, a white, rigid, erect-spined corpse standing on its head. Most of the marsh ditches around Yarmouth abound with sticklebacks, save where small and stunted pike eke out a precarious livelihood. 
you will seldom find the stickleback there, for Aesox Lucius has eaten up every one of them, and now depends chiefly on hapless little frogs, which, unaware of its presence, plunge into the ditch for a swim bath. In clear, clean ditches, the stickleback thrives and becomes numerous. Even in the shallowest droves may be seen darting away as one's shadow falls on the water. But there are certain ditches on the allotments north of the Destructor, between Yarmouth and Caister, where every captured stickleback is found to be covered with fungoid growths, and in many cases infested with parasites. Early in August 1906, I met a lad coming from the allotment ditches with a pickle bottle full of sticklebacks, and knowing that most, if not every fish, would be affected by parasitic spots, I examined them and found my surmise correct. I begged a couple of him, and placing them in a tube of formalin which I carried, I eventually sent them, with other specimens, to Mr. Robert Gurney of Ingham Hall, Stalham, who replied, I am returning your beasts. The most interesting of them is the stickleback. I found the Cites gastrostae for the first time this year, and thought myself only the second finder in these islands. But I never saw such a crop of them as you have there. I think it is probably quite common if looked for. It is only found under the opercula of fishes. The black spots, that gave the fish a leopard-like appearance, have nothing whatever to do with it, and are probably due to sporozoa, or fungi. I found the Cites in the Muck Fleet, a very dirty stretch of water in the Broads, and the Yare this year. The stickleback seems quite at home in water absolutely fresh, brackish, or salt, although he does not enter the last named from choice. He has a habit of congregating at the entrances of the sluice gates, which are now and again opened to allow of surplus water running into the rivers. There is much food usually gathered there, and when the gates are lifted, he is carried downstream with the current. This does not greatly inconvenience him, and I have not infrequently observed shoals on the riverward side of the iron sluice gates, as if waiting a chance to return. But this does not happen. Many are carried down into the sea, and are probably soon devoured by various marine fishes. I have seen the stickleback drawn ashore with young herrings, and kicking about among the seaweeds. In May 1906, my small son John brought home some sticklebacks. An example, three parts grown, I allowed to remain two days in fresh water. I then took him out and placed him in a tank of seawater, in which were two whelks, an anemone, and two rissos crabs, xantho rivulosa, taken from the deep water. 
he lived here apparently comfortably enough for five days without the slightest sign of irritation or inconvenience then i fished him out again and deposited him in an aquarium with three small carp for companions here he was quite happy and kept them company for some days after when if i remember rightly i gave him his liberty for his good behaviour dogfishers versus herrings the following entry in my notebook is dated october the twentieth nineteen o six walked to the harbour mouth this afternoon to see what the wind of a day or two previous might have caused to be washed ashore i found thousands of herrings thrown up by the tide and spread in a decaying line at least three miles in length it may be well to mention that a westerly wind causes jetsam to come ashore whereas an easterly wind drives to the beach such objects as float i noticed that nine out of every ten herrings showed bites from dogfishes packs of which destructive fishes play great havoc with the herrings fast in the net as well as those swimming in shoals the dogfish always bites out pieces very like a brazil nut both in size and shape now and again the spiny beast himself becomes entangled in the meshes of the net and is drowned or knocked on the head by the fishermen as they clear the incoming nets stranded fish one of the delights of the seashore to me is the ever likely chance of finding queer or interesting creatures thrown ashore by the waves the little heaps of seaweed shot out of the beachman's draw net although correctly speaking pitched there by accident afford one much entertainment in sorting over the small and the juvenile fishers kicking about amongst them but do not conduce to speculation and deduction as to the relationship of effects with causes the finding and the condition of the great number of dead herrings already referred to were accidental i do not think they would have been there but for the onslaughts of the dogfishers and the drawing in tendencies of the undercurrent attendant on a westerly wind an easterly wind flinging up big breakers always pulls out jetsam but drives floating objects ashore occasionally fishers are thrown ashore in quite an unexpected manner and certain fishers seem more liable to this kind of accident than others the opar is one of these a deep-bodied heavy fish with a comparative insufficiency of fin power it has been notorious by its proneness when muddled amongst sandbanks and adverse currents to end its career on the seashore one of the first i ever saw was stranded at caister in october eighteen ninety one after a storm it weighed fifty one pounds was preserved for a local fish merchant and has recently been placed in the tollhouse museum unfortunately 
it seems impossible to reproduce the magnificent coloration of the living or freshly dead fish, but the preserver has at least made it passably realistic. This is the fourth specimen, to my knowledge, obtained in the locality, and all of them landed against their will. The same remarks apply to the Ray's Bream, Sparus Niger, a deep, bream-like fish which, when unwittingly wandering amongst the numerous sandbanks, shares the same untimely fate. Centrolophus Pompilus, the blackfish, of which only one specimen is recorded for Norfolk, introduced himself in like manner. I have occasionally seen very immature bass left on the sands by the retreating tide, and could only account for their presence by their having strayed too closely inshore and been drawn in by the undercurrent. Congers, though not nearly so frequently of late years, were at one time often found on the beach during continuous easterly gales, when a severe frost had obtained their bladders becoming distended by the severity of the cold, they found themselves incapable of sinking, and so were thrown from billow to billow until landed on the sands. It was a custom in sharp weather for certain perambulators of the beach, old men generally, to take a sack with them in which to drop their fines, and more especially with a hope of falling in with conger eels. A fair-sized whiting surprised a friend on one occasion by flinging itself onto the beach in front of him, as did quite recently a large squid, Loligo vulgaris. In both instances, I feel certain they were fleeing from pursuing codfishers, who are not averse to silvery whiting or the luscious tentacle of a savoury cuttle. In the latter instance, my friend touched the squid with his walking stick, when it vomited its ink, making a peculiar gurgling noise. He flung the creature in again, and saw no more of it. I have seen the squid come ashore in a similar manner, and heard that curious vomiting sound as it stained the sand all round it. Occasionally a round fish is found that undoubtedly owed its demise to an unfortunate adventure with a sea angler's hooks. After an exhausting struggle, it had dropped or torn itself off to be thrown up by the waves, ere returning strength had enabled it to hold its own, or it had succumbed to its injuries. In the old leisurely days of the herring fishery, when little masters had an innings and steam had not come to the fishing fleet to encourage the greed of company mongers, the fishermen had more leisure, being dependent on winds and tides. On breezeless days, the boys, finding time hang heavily on their hands, would get what fun they could from bird and fish, sometimes by hooking and in other ways catching the former, at other times by tormenting the latter. The dogfish, hated for its shark-like ways and appearance, 
was badly treated. Sometimes the living fish would be turned adrift with corks attached to its tail, so as to be unable to sink again or to control its movements. Often it would be disemboweled and flung overboard to perish miserably, while the livers would be cut out of the larger ones for the purpose of making into oil. As a lad, I often found these wretched fishes dead among the flotsam, with their misplaced floats still attached to their tails. Young Herrings The great spawning time of our east coast herrings is looked for in the autumn, the full fish ensuring to the spawning grounds in October and November. One would naturally suppose that there would be a well-defined gradation in the sizes of young herrings taken from time to time during the year. I make no comment, but simply state that I have taken, or found, immature herrings exactly three inches in length in the following months, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, and November. Twait Shad Unusual numbers of the twait shad, Clupea finta, were taken in the herring nets during the autumnal fishing of 1906. They were about the size of the herrings, and several, to my knowledge, found their way even as far as the riving stage of the herring cure, that is, after being washed and salted, were handled singly by the rivers, who spitted them, or threaded them by the gills on the long sticks or spits, for hanging up the loves for the purpose of being smoked. The twait shad is easily distinguished by the seven, eight, or nine spots running along each side of it from the Alice shad, Clupea alosa, which has only one spot on the edge of either gill cover near the pectoral fins. Mackerel items I have before referred to the capricious movements of the mackerel, scomba, scomba. Some years ago, the East Coast mackerel fishing was one of Yarmouth's important industries, the landing and selling on the beach of the beautiful fish, affording an interesting and novel sight. Suddenly the mackerel deserted this neighbourhood, but shortly afterwards it appeared in great numbers off the Cornish coast, whither our enterprising boat owners sent their craft which for a time were fairly successful. But the 1904 and 1905 voyages were complete failures. Once again in the spring of 1906, these dandies of the sea revisited in great numbers their old Norfolk haunts, and with characteristic smartness the Yarmouth boats went quickly after them the fishing being pursued with energy and profit. At the conclusion of the fishing, Mr. J, the master at the fish wharf, kindly allowed me to overhaul his books, which gave me the following facts. Last year, 1905, 
very few boats were engaged in the pursuit of the mackerel. This year, 1906, however, something like 50 luggers went after them. For May and June, the catchers totaled 145 lasts. Up to June the 21st, a last of mackerel numbering 12,000, catchers amounted to something like a million and three quarters of fish. Prices realised as much as 18 shillings and a pound per hundred, the average being about 12 and sixpence. The largest haul of any one boat at one time was a last. One boat earned £250. There were a few trunks of mackerel on the wharf on the 21st, which I saw, but it was then remarked that they then didn't catch enough to feed the crews. Strange fishes, which we usually expect to find consorting with mackerel, this year were few. Sir mullets were taken in small numbers, with a few shads, garfish, scribbled mackerel, scomber scripter, and salmon trout. It is my opinion that the mackerel were pursuing the herring sile, which swarmed our coast this summer. This, coupled with a continuation of easterly breezes, seemed to suit well the hungry, rollicking characteristics of this jolly fish. Mackerel were not caught in such numbers during the herring fishing as in some recent years. The author notes that in 1905 the herring sile was remarkably and unaccountably scarce. The Bellows Fish There is in the Toll House Museum a quaint and extremely rare little fish, the bellows fish, Centriscus scolopax, known sometimes as the sea woodcock and the trumpet fish. It is a native of the Mediterranean and is said to be a common species nowhere. It is the merest straggler to the southern coasts of Great Britain and has, in a very few instances, been cast up on the shore. Day, in British fishers, cites only some half-dozen instances of its capture, some of which are open to doubt, as he seems to suggest that the boarfish, Capros apa, may have been mistaken for it. An example of the fish in question was landed at Milford Haven in the latter part of April 1904 and sent to me by an unknown friend, who evidently knew of my penchant for strange marine creatures. Couch, in British fishers, gives the ordinary size of the fish as from four inches to five inches, the present example measuring seven and a quarter inches in length must be a fine one. Willoughby is said to have seen examples on sale in the fish market at Rome, but as the fish, minus its beak, can be covered by an ordinary envelope and is only three-fourths of an inch in thickness at its widest part, it speaks much for the economic and microscopic tastes of the Romans. Nevertheless, 
its flesh is said to be excellent eating and people who can dine contentedly on insectivorous birds ought to be good judges of its culinary properties the bellows fish is undoubtedly a slow swimmer and probably keeps well to the sea bottom where it uses the pipe fish-like end of its long stiff beak to gather tiny crustaceans entomostracea and other small marine creatures its very limited means of progression may account for its restricted wanderings and its presence in british waters must certainly be due to tidal influences briefly described the body is covered with small rough scales the eyes are exceedingly large and the body narrow the fins are small and the rays of the first dorsal are ornamented with stout spines the foremost of which is long and immovable and is probably used as a weapon of offence and a formidable one it must be that such a rarity should have been saved from destruction is exceedingly to the credit of my then unknown correspondent a gurnard's quietus couch's figure and description of the so-called little gurnard trigla passiloptera described also under that name by yarrell and thompson gave me some considerable trouble in trying to localize the species and eventually to satisfy myself as to its non-existence couch gave the length of examples examined by him at one inch and dr low who included it as a species in the norfolk list referred to a specimen obtained by him while trawling in lynn roads in may eighteen seventy three length two and three quarter inches in june eighteen ninety i obtained from a shrimper a small gurnard answering to couch's description this i forwarded to mr t southwell with another or two he replied norwich fifth of june eighteen ninety dear sir the gurnards you sent me i still think are the young of either trigla linata the streaked gurnard of couch or trigla hirundo couch's tubfish probably the latter which both couch and yarrell call trigla passiloptera regarding it as a distinct species on this day and i think rightly so far as i can see does not agree with them to settle the matter if possible i have sent both the fresh and spirit specimen to dr gunther and asked him his opinion will let you know the result mr southwell kindly sent me dr gunther's reply which was as follows the fish are undoubtedly the young of trigla gurnardus hirundo has longer pectoral fins there is no european species of trigla of so diminutive a size this then seems to be a satisfactory settlement of the question 
and although my shrimper friends persist in telling me they only find these small things which must be real fish and do not obtain red gurnards of intermediate sizes between three inches and above a foot i have to assure them the little gurnards and big gurnards are one and the same species a rare bonito scomba thanina dear sir we have a specimen fish brought to-day caught locally of the mackerel species weight about seven pounds fetched rather big price call at shop and see me respecting it either there or market when i will give you all particulars it is a handsome specimen signed r bezor ninth of july o six this was the first intimation i received with regard to a fish which not only afforded myself and several prominent naturalists considerable interest but led to the addition of a new species to the british list while the postcard was still in the hands of the postman i happened to call round at mr beazell's shop and saw the magnificent creature lying in state on the slab in the shop window interesting a small group of spectators who ventured many opinions upon it i at once had the fish photographed by flashlight hanging it on an easel tail upwards for the better display of its fins and i then sent it off to a bird stuffer's at norwich writing to mr t southwell asking him to call round there and see it i also made a pen and ink drawing of the fish as it lay on my table and forwarded it to the daily graphic erroneously naming it as i honestly believed it then to be the plain bonito auxis roche for the nearest approach to it in shape and coloration was the plain bonito in both days and couches british fishers fortunately my drawing was more truthful than my identification and mr southwell at once noticed the extension of the first dorsal fin the fish was captured a few miles off yarmouth by the drifter martha which was fishing for mackerel this species having turned up in the local waters this year nineteen o six in unusual numbers mr southwell at first thought it identical with pelomise sarda but certain markings which were peculiarly distinct when the fish was first taken caused some hesitation in our minds although the first dorsal fin very strikingly corresponded with that of sarda a photograph was submitted to dr gunther but he could not determine the species from it and suggested that the absence of dark bands along the lower side and the mottled figures on the back pointed to auxis fortunately mr southwell with that desire for exactness and love of correctness so characteristic of him suggested that the fish should go to the british museum authorities so that they might settle the point 
and thither it went. On August the 25th, I received the following letter from Mr. Southwell. Dear Patterson, I returned home last night and found your fish, which is none the worse for its journey. Also a letter from Mr. Boulanger to the following effect. The fish is a most interesting addition to the British fauna. Scomba thanina, cove, or Euthyanus alliteratus, ray. It is a pelagic fish of almost worldwide distribution, which has been several times taken on the coast of Scandinavia, but never on our coast, so far as I am aware, without making a search in the bibliography. I must therefore congratulate you on turning up a fish not only new to Yarmouth, but to Great Britain. If you do not mind, I will send a note to the field, and you had better record it in the zoologist. I saw at once that the fish was of a species of which I had no experience, but I have looked up its history in Day's Fishers of India. Mr. Southwell's note appeared in the field of September the 1st. The first half of it covered the ground I have already dealt with, but the latter half may not be considered out of place. He wrote, On turning to Day's Fishers of India, I find that he figures this species, plate 54, figure 6, under the name Thinus Thanina and states that it is found in the seas of India to the Malay archipelago, where it is common during the cold months, and that it is found in the Mediterranean and tropical parts of the Atlantic. Its northern range extends to the Scandinavian seas, and Lloyd, in his Game Birds, etc., of Norway and Sweden, quoting from the Proceedings of the Royal Academy of Science, Stockholm, 1863, mentions the occurrence of a specimen two feet nine inches long, weighing 22 pounds, near Malmo in 1857. Whether others have since been met with in the Scandinavian seas, I know not. The occurrence of this southern form of a widely distributed family of fishes off our eastern shores in an intermediate but still northern locality is very interesting, and it is quite possible that some of the bonitos, small tunnies or very large mackerel, which have from time to time been recorded, may have belonged to this species but falling into less discerning hands than those of Mr. Patterson, they may have passed unrecognised. The Yarmouth specimen was two feet long and weighed seven pounds. I am exceedingly pleased to record the capture of this stranger, whose subsequent adventures go to prove that utter absence of selfishness which is characteristic of all good naturalists, and the great care that is exercised in placing species on record in the annals of our county's fauna. 
the bonito is now in the toll house museum end of section 25